All right, Matthew chapter 16, we'll read a few text verses from here in just a moment. This new study that we're starting tonight is called the First Century Church. The graphic for it, that's the title of the first lesson. The title of the entire series is Becoming a First Century Church. And if you can see the graphic on the front of this study, it says Becoming a 21st Century Church, and the 20 is crossed out. So it's saying rather than saying we want to become modern, we want to become relevant, it's saying we want to look back to the very first century of the church that Jesus established and see how they were run, how they were instructed by the Apostle Paul and others, and say, Lord, help us to be a biblical church, to get back to the roots, look at what the Word of God says, and try to operate according to the way that the Bible church operated way back after Jesus Christ founded it. We've read these verses and broke them down a few times recently in the Sunday sermons, but Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 13, we'll read through 18. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, and some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I also say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think we'll read the verses after that maybe here in a little bit as well. But as we said recently, preaching through Sunday morning on these verses, we believe that Jesus Christ established the church while he was here on earth. He established it. He gave them the great commission. He ascended back up into heaven. And immediately there in the book of Acts going forward, we see the church operating that Jesus established, trying to carry out the mission that Christ gave them, which was to preach the gospel to every creature. We see many instructions from the apostle Paul that tell us how the church is to be run. There are also many things where there is not a specific commandment given, but we see the example and the pattern of how they were running their churches in the Bible. And we said we believe in these verses that Jesus was not saying the church would be built upon Peter, whose name meant a small stone, but rather he was taking and endorsing the statement that Peter made when he said that he was the Christ. He was the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said, blessed art thou. This is not something that a man has revealed unto you, but my Father, which is in heaven. Then he said, I say that thou art Peter, and in reference to himself upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We know another place in the New Testament, it says that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and no other person, no other man, no other system. It's Christ himself, which backs up the interpretation of this verse, that the church is built upon Jesus Christ. Notice it says there, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A gate is a defensive mechanism, not an offensive one. So then the mission of the church is supposed to be on the attack going forward for Jesus Christ. And he promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against it, meaning we can have victory. We should be able to take back territory from the devil that he wants for himself. 
and see souls saved, see marriages put back together, see good things happen for people who are hurting. And we have the promise that this is Jesus' church. It doesn't belong to anyone else. It's not Pastor Jack's church. It doesn't even belong to the congregation as a whole. It's God's church. This is, these are his buildings that we've dedicated to him. It's his money. It's his assets. This is the Lord's church, and we are simply here to do his will. The church was not built upon Peter, and it's not built upon any one man or any one personality. That's why we should be careful because it's a good thing to have people we look up to in the faith and teachers who preach the Bible to us, but we should not idolize or come into hero worship about a certain preacher because all the time preachers and leaders fall into error doctrinally or they fall into sin. And if that happens, it should not shatter our faith. We should be able to keep going forward and serving God. Right. And if the pastor starts teaching heresy, then there should be a new pastor that would got that would teach the word of God just like it is. And we keep going forward. Yes, he established leadership and throughout this series We'll try to get to a lot of what the Bible says about the order and why things are done the way that they are, but we have to remember that the church is first and foremost built upon Jesus Christ. This study was put together by Pastor Clarence Sexton, uh, Crown College and the church there in Tennessee. So it's sort of a, a Bible study laid out that way. And I know probably starting even next week, I'm going to deviate from what's there. So I make no claim of originality for all of this. That's why I'm trying to give you the outlines and see the things that were prepared. But I know also along the way, I'm going to be adding a lot, maybe even going in a complete different direction to look at certain topics that aren't listed within this study. So what we believe about the church must come from the Bible. The Bible is our sole authority for faith and for practice. We say that a lot. The word church is significant in the Bible because it is never used to refer to a denomination or a national church. The Bible teaches that every church is directly accountable to God. A simple definition of a local church is a group of baptized believers who have voluntarily joined themselves together to carry out the Great Commission. The church in the first century was given pastors to lead. When the church began to grow and there was so many physical needs that needed to be taken care of, they ordained deacons, the other office of the church, to help them carry out the mission. We see within the passages of the New Testament, churches gathering, a man standing up and preaching, Offerings being given, the gospel being taken out into the community and preached to others, missionaries being sent out of the church to go to other cities and preach the gospel, and people sent with money to give to them to help support them while they were trying to serve the Lord. We also see praying, we see fellowshipping, we see breaking of bread and sharing of meals as these people came together in the very first century after Christ and formed the local New Testament church commissioned by Christ, authorized by God, and given the promise that no other institution has, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. We know that sadly individual churches close down all the time. It was happening in America even before COVID and COVID is accelerating what is happening there and sadly, America may be turning into a time 
of apathy, where we've looked at it as we live in the South. We live in the Bible Belt, and there's a church on every corner. But someone said in the Dallas area, 75% of people have no church attendance or affiliation. And I've seen in my life, it seems like when I was a kid, I remember people coming into church who they would say, you know, when I was a kid, my grandparent took me to church, and I have a good memory from that. But it seems as if we're getting to a generation that basically was never involved with church at all is now having kids, and their kids do not even have a reference point for what church was. It's a sad reality and a sad truth. But as we continue forward in this context, serving the Lord in America, there may come more persecution. There may come a lot more apathy. Places in Europe where Charles Spurgeon and Finney and all these great people and revivals that were seen now is cold and it's dead. And the most common religious affiliation is none, N-O-N-E, on the survey and people are turning away from the church. Nevertheless, Jesus promised here that when he came back, there would be local New Testament churches going forward for him, serving, and that the devil would not succeed in stamping out the church. And it is still God's plan to carry forth his mission, the local New Testament church of Jesus Christ. Christ said, I will build my church. 118 times in the New Testament, there's the Greek word written, ekklesia. That's how you pronounce it, ekklesia. 115 times, it's translated church, and three times, it's translated assembly. The word has to do with a calling out and also a meeting or a gathering. So in other words, one of the ways I've heard it put my whole life is a church is a called out assembly. It's a physical coming together of the saints, the body of Christ into one place to meet. And it's those who have been called out of the world who has received Jesus Christ as their savior. We've said this often before as well, but the church is not the buildings. The church is the people. I have a lot of scriptures tonight. I don't know if I'll be able to get to them all, but I think I have a, a or maybe those will be for next time when we get there, but there's three different times in the New Testament where Paul is greeting people and he says, greet so-and-so and the church that is in his house. So a church can meet in a house and people do that all the time so long as they're functioning biblically with the ordinances, with the leadership, with the great commission. Um, unfortunately, house churches sometimes become, well, we don't like outside influence. We're trying to protect our kids. So we'll meet with two or three families and that's our church and no one's invited. Right. There's no ordinances. There's no carrying out of the great commission. Those, there's no ordained pastors. That, that's not what the definition of a church is. That's like a club, but a church is supposed to, again, have the biblical requirements and be striving to at least welcome those who would come yes. into the church. But a church can meet in the house, but also there's churches that met in buildings. There were people who were going to, I believe in one place it uses the word for synagogue, that they were going and gathering in the synagogue because it was a place that was available, and that's where they were carrying out church. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is correcting them for the way they did the Lord's Supper. They were making it a drunken feast. They were 
being gluttonous. The rich people were coming first and partaking, and the poor people in the back never made it in. And he was correcting them, and he said, Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? But when you're come together... So he was saying they had a building where they were going and where they were meeting. And I love the fact that we are provided with a building here in the heart of Plano that due to the giving and work of people in the past is completely paid off. There's no debt. If we were to be trying to start with what we are now and get facilities like this, we'd never be able to do it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Brand new church plants go all the time and they rent a storefront. They meet in a school. They meet in someone's house. They have to tear down all the chairs when they're done and then come in early Sunday morning and set it back up. It's a wonderful thing to have a building that is dedicated to the purpose of serving the Lord. But we must remember the church is not the building, it is the people. It is the called out assembly. The Holy Ghost indwells us, and when we come together to meet together for the preaching of the Word of God, that is what the church is. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 25. Jason, would you read uh, Hebrews 10.25? Again, very famous tonight, some sort of elemental introductory stuff. Hebrews 10.25? Yes. I'm going to be really bold to read verse 24. Go for it. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as we see the day approaching. So the instruction to Christians is that we are not to forsake what? The assembling of ourselves together. I said before that it's a good thing that throughout COVID, churches began to live stream so much more. Pretty much every church does now, except for us. We're not there yet. Hopefully we'll get there eventually. But a lot more people were watching and listening to the Word of God on the Internet than ever was before. And that was a good thing. And there was legitimate concerns for people who were elderly and who were concerned. That's what we tried to say the whole way through. Just make your own decision. Pray about it. Do what's best for you. Do what's right for your family throughout the pandemic. But we have to remember that the Bible instructs for us to come and to meet and to assemble together in one place. So watching church on the Internet can't permanently replace the instruction of the Word of God to assemble together. That's what the church is. I believe that the church is primarily for the saved to be equipped to live for Christ and then to go out into the world and to reach those who are lost with the gospel. Now, I just Sunday preached a very gospel-heavy message. I think there was some there who did not know the Lord, and I preached salvation as clear as I could. I believe that's what God wanted me to do. But I believe that primarily the purpose of the church service isn't for the lost so they would get saved, but rather for the saved so that they could be equipped to be able to help reach the lost. So it's interesting. I I remember having this conversation with my father-in-law one time. I was like, well, there's some people who are like, we have church and our church culture and church terms and people who come in, they're kind of lost. And they say, well, maybe we should change what we're doing and tailor it towards the people who are lost. So when they come in, it's a little easier to communicate and a little bit better for them to come in and feel comfortable. And we kind of came around to, yeah, it's not bad to 
try and communicate with people who are lost when they're there and you don't want to have all this church terms that they'll have no idea what you're talking about that maybe when you have a lot of visitors you could explain it a little bit more but we have to remember I think biblically the church is for those who are saved so you don't want to take the approach of what do people who not know the Lord at all want in church and then make the church like that so that those people will hopefully come there should be a distinction and so when someone comes into the world of the church who's not saved it is going to seem different but hopefully as we preach the word the Holy Spirit is doing the work of drawing them to himself remember when Jesus said to the disciples about the gospel he said go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature that's a going outward and a going forth and ascending that yes hopefully we can get people to come visit the church and preach the gospel to them but we're not just supposed to wait and hope that people come here to hear we're supposed to preach the word to Christians and then all of us go outside the four walls of the church and live out our faith and witness let's look at Ephesians chapter 4 And verse number 11, this is speaking of Jesus and the spiritual gifts that he has given. Verse 11 of Ephesians 4, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So, while, while moving quickly through and not getting into the whole subject of spiritual gifts and how all that is carried out, it says here that the Lord gave evangelists, pastors, teachers, prophets, and apostles would be more back in the day of Christ. What was the purpose they were given of? For perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, and then it says for the edifying of the body of Christ. To edify is to instruct. If you're edified, you have been taught. You have learned something. You have been fed. So the work of those who are teaching the Word of God is to be given to those who are saved that they may be edified. It's not that we're wanting to exclude the lost. If we're having visitors, we're going to preach the Bible and the Gospel. And we were talking the other day how I think Charles Spurgeon said, every text I've found so far in the Bible has a way to point back to the cross. He said, I haven't found one yet. Jesus is represented in typified throughout all the Bible and it points to salvation the gospel is the center of it but what I'm saying is what I believe is that primarily the work of the church the services of the church the preaching and the teaching teaches and equips those who are born again and we take our faith outside of these four walls it's not just something we do while we are here and the Lord uses us to witness to be a good testimony and to spread the gospel yeah. Acts chapter 20 And if you want, you can just listen to some of these. Acts chapter 20. And then next, Jason, would you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16? I'll have you read there for just one moment. And Andrew, would you go to Colossians chapter 2? Okay, I'm in Acts chapter 20 and verse number 7. The Bible says here, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them 
ready to depart on the morrow and continued his speech until midnight. Here we see the first century church meeting together on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, and the Apostle Paul standing up to preach unto them the Word of God. It mentions the breaking of bread. Well, we'll see another verse here in a moment. They were a family. They were sharing life together. They were in one another's homes. They were sharing meals because it was a church. It was a family. And we think that maybe today sometimes there's racial division in America, which there is. But in that time, it was really bad. You had the Samaritans and how they looked, were looked down upon. You had the Jews. You had the Romans who were oppressing them. So in this first century, people were getting saved. They were coming to the Lord, both Jew and Gentile. And the cultural lines were being broken down in a way they were not before. And people would stop and turn. And in the same church would be brothers and sisters in Christ of different races and skin colors and backgrounds. And a unity and a harmony was coming that God desires to be in the church. One of, one of my goals for this church is that we would be true to the Bible. We would be biblical. And I hope it's a church where all kinds of people are welcome. I was homeschooled. There's, Andrew was homeschooled. There's a lot of good conservative homeschool families. And if they come to this church, I hope they're welcomed. And I hope they're loved and they're respected and they find a place. And I hope there's some people who might move in down the neighborhood who used to go to Southern Baptist churches and they just saw Baptist and came down and that they would come in and say, I like this church. They're preaching the Bible. They're doing the word of God. And single moms and people who need help, people who are new in the faith, this should be a church that is not just designed and catered to one specific group and that's who we're trying to market to. We want to be welcome and open to everyone, giving the gospel to everyone, and whoever comes should be able to be respected and welcomed and loved in this church. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. So what most people think that means when it says lay by him in store, it's basically set aside. So the Apostle Paul said on the first day of the week, Take that which God has given you, set it aside, and then he says that there be no gatherings when I come. So evidently he was saying on the first day of the week, Sunday, set beside you what your offering is and give it in church so that it's not just this thing where when the Apostle Paul shows up, he demands money and we all just give it to him. So what were they doing? They were meeting on the first day of the week on Sunday and listening to preaching, fellowshipping, giving their offering. Um, Revelation 1.10, John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's the only time that phrase is used in Scripture. The Sabbath day was not referred to as the Lord's day, but Sunday was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So we believe that for New Testament Christians, it's the first day of the week, it's Sunday. That's when they were coming to hear Paul preach. That's when they were coming to give their offerings. That's what we believe John was referring to when he said on the Lord's day. Plus we have the fact in history 
We know that right from that first century, all the historical evidence shows that they were meeting on Sunday. That's why we're still meeting on Sunday. And as far back as we can trace, the Christian church was meeting on Sunday. There's some people who in many ways today are trying to push back to Jewish roots and the Sabbath day and remember to keep the Sabbath day. Um, Andrew, would you read Colossians 2, 12 through 17? Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a shoe of them, openly triumphing over them in it. Verse 16, let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the noon, or of the Sabbath days. He said to 18? 17 is 17. good. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So it says that Christ died for our sins, and then it refers to him taking the handwriting of ordinances, which was against us. Is that the phrase? Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, which was against us. That's pointing to Old Testament law. Those ordinances which condemned us because we could not live up to the law perfectly. Jesus took them out of the way. He nailed it to the cross. And it says, therefore, let no man judge you in regards to the eating of meat, to the new moons. And it specifically mentions the Sabbath days. They had the Sabbath every Saturday, but they also had ceremonial Sabbaths throughout the year that were special holy days. So if anyone tries to tell you that it's doing it wrong if you're not having church on Saturday because of the Ten Commandments or whatever other evidence they want to point to, New Testament texts show they were meeting on the first day of the week. History shows that. John calls it the Lord's Day, historical evidence, and then also from Colossians chapter 2, it specifically mentions Sabbath days as being intertwined with Old Testament law, and God has freed us from that, and that part of it has passed away. So when do you have to have church? What do you have to do? At one point it says that daily in the temple... And in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. So there was a continual in the gathering place and in every home, teaching, preaching of Jesus, searching of the scriptures. But the first day of the week, Sunday, is where we see the biblical evidence pointing to when the church would meet. And then other things we have like today can supplement that. Let me read you 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Here we see in a New Testament context, in one of the epistles from the Apostle Paul, that's directing a young preacher how things are to be done. Remember, it's Timothy. He told 
preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season. At one point he mentions ordaining elders in every city. This is an epistle that's given to a young preacher about how the New Testament church operates. And he says he's writing this that he may know how to behave himself. Then he says, in the house of God. So in a New Testament context, it's biblically accurate to say this is God's house. This has been set aside for his purpose and for the mission of the New Testament church. Then it says about the church of the living God, it is the pillar and ground of the truth. So then the church is not the source of truth, but it is the pillar and the ground that holds it up and lifts it up to the world. We are running really short on time. I haven't got to the outline yet, but we're still going to be done on time. The Lord is doing His work in this world through local churches. It's our job then first and foremost to strive not to be relevant or even to be innovative, but to be biblical. Yeah. And whatever creative ideas the Lord wants to give us, they have to fall within a biblical context, which is to glorify God, edify the saints, spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first point in your outline, the first century church started with Christ and his disciples and was empowered at Pentecost. Do you have an extra one of those handouts, Andrew? Oh, so yeah, if you don't mind grabbing me one, I want to make sure I emphasize where I left them for you to fill in. But the first century church started with Christ and his disciples and was empowered at Pentecost. Thank you, sir. We can look back to the Bible, to the first century church, and consider some basic things about it. We know that Christ started the church with his disciples. Okay, let's look at Matthew chapter 18. We already read Matthew 16. This one is similar, and I'm thinking I'm, I'm just going to be having a stopping point. So like I said, I don't know how long this series is going to be. It may end up being a bit of a long one, but I like the series format because we can take our time, we can lay the groundwork, and I don't have to blitz through anything. So go ahead, Jason. I suggest you, sir, if you don't leave anything out, find stopping points. And you said you'd help you get to all the scripture. I'd like to hear all the story. All right. Appreciate that. Good word. Uh, at this point, I don't have much choice. So we're just going to do that. So I'm not going to skip by the entire outline, but we'll look at introduction and then the outline. And I advertise this as 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. I think once I prayed till 8.02, but I'm going to try to keep it as close as I can. Matthew chapter 18 and verse number 15. The Lord says here to his disciples, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. These are verses where the Lord instructs us what to do if we have a problem or an issue with another believer. They're very clear. They're very simple and straightforward. Yet, unfortunately, I'm afraid they don't get followed very often. Oftentimes, we have something we're upset at another person about, and we, we hold it inside, we let the anger grow, or else we gossip to other people and talk to others instead of the one who we have a problem with. Now, the other extreme of that is that we could be too easily offended, and we're going to everyone all the time and saying, I didn't like the way you did that, I don't like the way you did this, and maybe we can overstep our bounds. 
But the way that Jesus put it here was, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, if he did something to you that you believe is a sin, that is an offense, that they have wronged you, the biblical prescription is go talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, see if you can work it out. The next verse, 16. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee two or more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. That phrase, two or three witnesses, is used over and over again in the Bible. In the Old Testament law, here in a New Testament context, there's a lot of wisdom in having two or three witnesses whenever there's something that's controversial, something that you could be accused of something. Uh, my dad always taught the Lord sent his disciples out two by two. So when we go forward for missionary work, for even just walking around the neighborhood, uh, it's a lot of wisdom to having someone with you and not being alone, that you don't open yourself up to accusation or to whatever it may be. Verse 17, And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. So here we see sort of the formula for church discipline. Someone has sinned, Go to them one-on-one. -on -one. They won't hear you. Take two or three people with you. They still won't hear you. Bring it before the whole church. If they won't hear the whole church, the Bible says basically treat them as if they were a heathen or as if they weren't saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe it was, there was a man in the church who was involved in some really serious gross wickedness. And the instruction of the Apostle Paul was deliver him unto Satan, meaning kick him out of the church. Now, people talk about church discipline. They say, well, if you're going to be biblical, you need to do church discipline. And I think that you do. But I don't think it means that when we hear that someone has done something wrong, we're supposed to bring them before the church and embarrass them or put them on suspension. Rather, if there is someone who is in open and unrepentant sin, that they are refusing to hear and refusing to do right at some point, you might have to remove them from the church, which to my mind, the context would be that you separate them from membership, not even that they're not allowed to attend. But if someone is joining themselves to the church, the, the formula for church discipline means there's some agreement there of accountability that you're telling other people, I'm joining to this work, I'm joining to this body of Christ, this local independent New Testament work, and I'm agreeing to some level of accountability that I'm going to help give, I'm going to help work, I'm going to help do what I can to help the church go forward. But also, if I were to fall into wickedness and refuse to repent of it, then we understand there's a formula there to hold people accountable. So anyway, I could give examples of that, but I don't think I need to get into that. But someone who's living in open, unrepentant sin, we should... the system should be followed. Go to them one-on-one, -on -one, bring two or three, come before the church, give them three chances, plead with them, but someone who still continues and refuses to get right with God or to get rid of sin would be removed from the privileges of church membership. So anyway, all that to say in verse number 18, Jesus then moves on. And I was going to say that as well. There's also a verse that talks about the elders, the leaders of the church, them that sin, rebuke before all that others may hear also, unfortunately, there's been in recent times newspaper exposés run against the Catholic Church, 
against independent Baptist churches and against Southern Baptist churches, many separate churches who showed patterns of people who were in leadership involved in sin, involved in immorality, sometimes even involving abuse or involving children, and they covered it up. They didn't tell people what was going on, and sometimes they took those leaders and shuffled them around to another church. I think it's not only a mistake. I think it's unbiblical. I think it's sin. It's specifically to imagine someone who was involved in abuse being sent to another town to work with other people where there's other vulnerable sheep of Christ without a public rebuke, without discipline, without warning people, I think is just wrong. And I think there's certain sins that fall in that moral area that people who have committed them, it will get into at some point the qualifications of a bishop, and it's that they would be blameless. And that word has to mean something. So scandalous sins, they should be rebuked before all, not just because we're trying to punish them, but that others may learn also. And I'm out of time, but let's read these two more verses. Verse 18, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done of them, of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So basically to put it simply, what I believe these verses are saying, he talks about an authorized work that he has given them to do, which is carrying forth the mission of the church, the separation of those who refuse to learn and to hear. And then he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So I don't think he's saying we have the arbitrary power to decide what the truth is and to decide what should happen. But he's saying in the area where I have authorized you and given you authority to carry out the mission, that authority lies with you to be able to do what I've already commissioned you to do. And then verse 19, we believe that would fall into that context as well. Well, if two of you agree, then you can do anything. It's obviously in the context of what Christ has commissioned and authorized them to do, not just that we get to make up our own thing and to do our own thing. But at any rate, he talks about the, the process of a brother who's transgressed against you and how the church operates. And then he says, what you bind will be bound, what you loose shall be loosed. And he has given us a lot of power with we're the ones who carry out the gospel. We're the ones who he's given the mission of the church. And if you agree, touching anything, it shall be done by my Father which is in heaven. Then he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. I've heard several per people say recently, well, where two or three are gathered in my name, that's taken out of context all the time because it's talking about church discipline. So it shouldn't be talked about for anything except for church discipline. And as I look at that text, it starts with that, but then it says, whatever you loose, whatever you bind. And he says, whatever you ask the Father... Then he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. So again, the context, we can't say we're coming together in the name of Jesus to beat people up and steal their cars and think he's going to be in that. But in the mission of the church and what he's given us to carry out to do, I personally keep looking at these verses. and I think it's very accurate to say if two or three of us are gathered here in church in the name of Jesus tonight to do what he's commissioned and given us to do, 
he's there with us in carrying that out. So the first century church started with Christ and his disciples and was empowered at Pentecost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we've given a little bit of introduction tonight as we move forward into this study, that we would be eager, open, and hungry to learn what your word says and that as a church, we would hopefully, all of us, try to pull together with the common goal of glorifying Jesus Christ and seeing his work carried out here where you have placed us at this moment in time. Bless everyone who chose to come out tonight, hear and answer our prayer request. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here. God bless you.